Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, October 29th, 2020. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. First, I want to express my appreciation for the hundreds of well wishes I received during my two-week ordeal with a kidney stone and its complications. I am presently emerging from a pain and drug-induced haze, but I'm doing well now. That's not Big Ben in the background. That's just a clock I have that does that. It amuses me. This just in, just before airtime, or at least just brought to my attention, what I'm about to describe to you is a full frontal assault on the rule of law, and the banks are trying to jam it through as a rule change to allow illegal foreclosures. This development is the bank's response to my blog and to the various defenses that I've published on behalf of hundreds of homeowners. You, the listener, must defeat this by writing to everyone you can think of to voice your protest. The rule becomes final in 60 days from October 27th. The announcement of this rule is time to be ignored overlooked because of the looming election where everybody's attention is directed at COVID and who they're going to vote for and all the other major issues of our time, there is no greater issue in terms of the economy than what the Wall Street banks did in terms of Um, the investment banks entering the world of lending without ever becoming a lender and therefore avoiding all the laws, rules, regulations, responsibilities, liabilities of a lender. Up till now, there has been a legitimate issue and there still will be, as to whether or not the party who is bringing, who is named by the foreclosure mill as bringing a claim for foreclosure, meaning they're looking for restitution of an unpaid debt, up to now, that entity had to be a company or trust or person 
who had paid value for the underlying debt as required by state statutes in all 50 states who adopted the Uniform Commercial Code, Article 9, Section 203. And it's a constitutional requirement because without owning the debt, you can't claim damage to the debt to you because you didn't have any damage because you don't own the debt. Issued on October 27, 2020, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, the OCC, issued a rule that determines when a national bank or federal savings association or bank makes a loan and determines who is a true lender. And they talk about the context of a partnership between a bank and a third party without necessarily defining what they mean in terms of the role that either one plays, either at the time of origination of a transaction with a homeowner or at the time of foreclosure. This rule may not directly affect originators who are neither national banks or federal savings association, but it is carte blanche to the likes of Goldman Sachs, Chase, Bank of America, etc. And it will probably be carried over to other entities that are not national banks or federal savings associations. Unless, of course, you do something to bring it to the attention of the media, politicians, etc. The rule specifies that a bank makes a loan and is the true lender if, as of the date of origination, which is a whole other question, but um, if on the as of the date of origination, it is one named as the lender in the loan agreement or it funds the loan. So in other words, what they're doing here is saying that someone who is merely named as the lender in the loan agreement becomes the lender and that's the party responsible under TILA, RESPA, et cetera, for violations of lending laws, rules, and regulations. But, of course, that's always a squeaky thin uh, capitalized company that that results in nothing if those laws are attempted to be enforced because those companies don't have anything and they go instantly belly up when there's a hiccup in the marketplace. The rule also specifies that if, as of the date of origination, one bank is named as the lender of the loan agreement for a loan, and another bank funds that loan, they don't necessarily say that it has to be, that the other bank has to be a a national bank or federal savings association. The bank that is named as the lender in the loan agreement is the one that 
shall be taken as the one making the loan, even though they're not. The rule specifies that a bank makes a loan and is a true lender just because it is either named or, in the rare case, where it actually funds the loan. So the OCC has corroborated everything that I have said on my blog and in these broadcasts and in my seminars and in the books and pamphlets and other publications that I've issued. The OCC recites that it recognizes that there are, in fact, problems with identifying the true lender and with table-funded loans, which have been against public policy since the 1960s. The fix is in, folks, unless there is a public outcry. You have to do something. This rule change effectively allows anyone to be considered a true lender, even if they didn't give the borrower one penny. It also reverses, and, and it insulates, the party who did fund the loan, allowing table-funded loans, which is, has been against public policy for decades because of one of the primary uh, uh, provisions of the Truth in Lending Act, which was the borrower has to know who they're dealing with. It also reverses public policy in allowing third parties to lend money as table funders without a license or any disclosure as to their existence. In other words, this rule is doing what the law does not allow. This rule is intending to give cover to the investment banks on Wall Street to continue with administration, collection, and enforcement of debts they don't own. Now, whether this will be an administrative finding that the courts have to give deference to and all that stuff, it's going to be argued. The important thing is to see if we can get rid of this because it's absolutely contrary to law. So what this means is that the banks are simply unable to come up with a way to bring forward any company that has an entry on its ledgers indicating the payment and ownership of the loan. For the last 20 years, they have been using a virtual creditor rather than a real one, contrary to not only current law, but centuries of law, if not thousands of years of law. The law requires a real creditor, not a virtual one. A virtual one emerges just because somebody said so. This rule is beyond the authority of the OCC, in my opinion, and therefore falls under the legal term of ultraviaries outside their authority. And it's probably unconstitutional because it deprives the borrower of rights given under the consumer protection statutes. If this does become final in 60 days, homeowners will have very little to defend their home against law firms who do not represent anyone who has a financial interest or loss associated with the alleged loan. They can foreclose, 
even though the money is used for bonuses, not repayment of a debt. That sounds crazy to you? It is, but that's how capitalism runs amok without the regulators doing their job. So get your pen out, go to email, Twitter, Facebook, and start writing congressmen, senators, governors, and people in the executive branch. This rule is coming out now. It's coming out now because under a Democratic administration, it will never fly. And so the banks are rushing it through now rather than attempting to try to get it later. Now back to our main topic for tonight. I get a lot of questions and requests for services in relation to cases that are already over. So the question becomes motion to vacate, motion for rehearing, motion for reconsideration, and appeal. Each of those has distinct and different characteristics, but all of them tend to be used interchangeably by lay people, and I've even found them used interchangeably by lawyers. So I wanted to do a little bit, a little piece here tonight on the difference between motion to vacate, motion for rehearing, motion for reconsideration, and appeal. There is a huge difference. Failure to understand these differences results in, every year, thousands upon thousands of hours of legal work that is completely useless except perhaps as a delay tactic or to become noisy enough that perhaps uh, uh, a favorable settlement or modification will be offered by a party who has no entitlement to the money to begin with. When you sign that modification, you are at that point presumptively agreeing that you will accept a virtual creditor just like the rule that I just mentioned. That's what they've been doing in all the modifications is getting people to sign those modifications just so they no longer have to have a real creditor. And so they can use foreclosures for bonuses instead of repaying the debt. In order to score points in this arena, you must first disabuse yourself of the notion that you're dealing with a standard mortgage loan, which is what they all love to say, and what the foreclosure mill will say was a, is a standard mortgage foreclosure. There's nothing standard about any of this. Know how to use that knowledge. Second, you have to know how to use that knowledge to make legal points that cannot be ignored by the trial court or an appellate court. Now, people are very quick to point out how this is not a standard mortgage and it's not a standard foreclosure and all that, 
But unless you know how to use that information and how to back it up and corroborate it, you're headed for a loss. And what I'm trying to do is help homeowners and their lawyers win a whole lot more of these cases because it can be done. Just because you labeled a pleading as a motion to vacate does not mean that it will be treated as a motion to vacate, nor should it. If it's really a motion for rehearing or reconsideration that has the label of motion to vacate on it, the judge will either throw it out completely or recite that he or she is treating it as a motion to for reconsideration or rehearing. This issue is just like an assignment of mortgage or beneficial interest in a deed of trust that turns out not to be an assignment of mortgage because it does not include transfer of the underlying debt after payment of value for that debt. The transfer must be either recited in the assignment or, or and referring to it to a purchase agreement or reflecting a purchase agreement, or it may be a collateral transaction. So it can either be in the instrument that says it's a it's an assignment of mortgage, or there can be a separate purchase, for example, of the note or the debt uh, if there's proof of payment. So if that happens, then the assignment of mortgage is substantively valid. If the purchase is not recited on the face of the instrument, then the assignment of mortgage is facially invalid, and therefore no legal presumptions can arise, and therefore they can't offer that assignment as proof of the matter asserted, which is that there's a new owner of the mortgage or deed of trust. In any event, the recitation of transfer of the debt for value paid or concurrent with the assignment in a separate transaction, it requires actual proof of payment which is exactly what this new rule is trying to eliminate and what has been law in this country and in all countries for centuries. It requires proof of payment and transfer from someone who owns the underlying obligation. So one of the ways that the banks finesse this is they show, they show some kind of proof of payment occasionally, but it's by uh, the, the payment is, is made to a party that does not own the underlying obligation and the conveyance is still another party who does not own the underlying obligation. So it's all a spoof. It's smoke and mirrors, like a lot of the stuff that you see on the internet now. 
The point missed by many lawyers is that the label on a pleading does not define it. It's the content of the pleading that defines it. So we're talking about an area of law that's confusing to lawyers, laypersons, and even judges. There is a difference between a motion to vacate, a motion for rehearing, and a motion for reconsideration. And generally, the actual decision comes down to a practical gut decision on the part of the judge as to whether or not there has been a manifest injustice. If the judge concludes, for example, that even though the foreclosure was procured by fraud, fabricated documents, forgery, etc., the judge could actually deny a motion to vacate, a motion for rehearing, or a motion for reconsideration. Because if he decides that ultimately the foreclosure resulted in payment to a real creditor, then there may be actions for contempt and sanctions and various other things, but the judgment on the case itself for foreclosure will be sustained or maintained. Trial court decisions are not corrected on appeal unless there was a clear mistake by the trial judge, specified mistake by the trial judge that would have resulted or most likely would have resulted in a different decision. Appeals are not about whether judges on the appellate panel would have decided the case differently. And an appeal is not a forum for re-arguing the case, and you can't introduce new evidence. The case has been heard, and it's final, regardless of what you manage to get into evidence or not. And unless there was an error and it resulted in a violation of law like due process where the specific violation resulted in a decision that would have been different if the violation had not occurred, the case will remain undisturbed even though every member of the appellate panel agrees that they would have decided the case differently. But even if all that is true, the court will not and may not even consider the issue unless the issue was timely and properly raised and preserved without any intentional or unintentional waiver in the trial court. Now, this happens a lot that litigation proceeds pretty far down the road and suddenly somebody wants to raise an objection that goes all the way back to the pleading. In most cases, you've waived that. And if you haven't formally waived it, you've informally waived it, and the judge will regard it as not credible. So even if the judge allows some kind of response to that, the weight 
given to the issue that you're raising is far less than if you raise it at the beginning. And, you, of course, you have to identify specifically what you're talking about. Don't just talk about what isn't there. Talk about what should be there. A motion to vacate usually presents the court with information that was previously unavailable and that, if it had been known, would have resulted in a different order or judgment. What you're saying in a motion to vacate is that the judge knew about this information. The final order or judgment would have been different. You are not saying the judge did anything wrong. That is a mistake, and it's one which I have to correct, especially pro se litigants, all the time, calling the judge an idiot or an animal or whatever. Even if you're right, it can't possibly do you any good, and it will poison the well, both with that judge and any appellate court that reviews it. So don't do that if you really want to achieve a result. If you're in court just to vent, then take your chances. You might end up in contempt of court. A motion for rehearing, unlike a motion to vacate, essentially seeks to have the trial court review its own case and the evidence on record and argues that the court misapprehended the evidence and was misled into the wrong conclusions and therefore issued the wrong final order or judgment. So you basically say to the judge, we know you heard everything. We think you got it wrong. And here's why. And that has to be enormously persuasive. It's very rare that a motion for rehearing is granted. And by the way, a motion for rehearing generally must be filed. Now, sometimes there's a difference in nomenclature from state to state, but generally has to be required in around 15 days from the date of rendition of the final order that you're asking for rehearing about. The difference between the two is enormous. When people file a notice of appeal from a motion labeled as a motion to vacate that was in actuality a motion for rehearing, their appeal is thrown on a pile of cases that will be affirmed. The appellate court will not substitute its own judgment for the judgment of the trial court. The appellate court will only issue a correction of the trial court if the judge trial judge made a mistake, and I might add a clear, plain, specific mistake. The third strategy is a motion for reconsideration. The rules vary from state to state as to whether as to when this can be filed, but generally you have more time in which to file a motion for reconsideration than you do for a motion for rehearing. The motion for reconsideration is essentially the same as an extended motion to vacate with a little more wiggle room. A good motion for reconsideration, which is also rarely granted, uh, will reveal new facts, hopefully that were unknown at the time of trial, unavailable at the time of trial, and uh, where those facts are relevant to issues properly and timely raised in defense. 
If you've got a new, newly published case that went your way, that's a good place to start. But the baseline for successful post-judgment litigation is manifest injustice. Getting there is not easy. It isn't enough to accuse or allege the documents, etc. For manifest justice to even arrive at the scene, it must be the result of clear and convincing evidence. No reasonable person would conclude otherwise, showing that the result, foreclosure, should not have been awarded to the named claimant, beneficiary, or plaintiff under any circumstances, not just because there was a procedural or even a substantive error, but because the relief that was granted was granted contrary to law and contrary to the implied allegation that the foreclosure is meant to pay off an unpaid debt rather than as it really is that the foreclosure is meant to fund bonuses in investment banks. That's it for this week. Thank you for attending, and we'll be back at you in the coming weeks. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.